Welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of Clicker Training for Your Horse and other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. For the last couple of podcasts, we've been visiting with one of my Click the Teaches coaches, Mary Concannon. Mary has been introducing us to her thoroughbred newbie. In the process, we've covered a wide range of subjects. Last week, we were talking about grumpy looking horses and what you can do to turn their acceptance of being handled into real enjoyment. We had reached a point where I wanted to change to a completely different subject. And that's where we ended the podcast. So we'll pick up again right at the point where we left off last week. We were about to introduce one of the other hats that Mary wears. To change the subject completely, and why not? So <laughs> you, you, you have a different, another hat. You're actually retired from your other hat. Yes. Yes. So your other hat was you are a microbiologist. That's and right. That's right. And the, the subject that I wanted to open up was how to read scientific literature. Right. And how to read it so that you can separate, what is it, separate the wheat from the chaff. Right. So there's, just because a study has been published, even though it has gone through peer review, yeah. doesn't necessarily mean that every study out there is worth hanging your hat on, as it were. Absolutely. So Absolutely. when you're, so can you help us to to under, to to learn how to go about reading and becoming comfortable reading the scientific literature so when you were teaching and you were working with your students how do you go about introducing them to the scientific literature how do you read it how do you evaluate studies well, I'm going to do an Alex on it and I'm going to tell a little story first. Okay, I like stories. <laughs> because I started my career in science as a science technician and I moved on as a research into research as a research technician. And from there, I went back to college, did a degree and then went back into research again. So one of the first things I was asked to do as a research student, I was given a paper and I was asked to reproduce the results in this paper by growing up a particular microorganism and extracting an enzyme from it. And the instructions in the paper were all very clear. And because I had at that stage quite a number of years working in a lab as a technician, I knew that I was you know, pretty okay on the practical stuff. And I knew my practical skills were good. But no matter how I tried and how many ways I tried to repeat this experiment, I got 10 times less approximately enzyme than the paper said I should. 
So I went to my supervisor and I said, you know, this is what's happening. I have no idea why. I've looked at the paper up and down and inside out and I'm still getting this result. And she said to me, well, I know the person who wrote the paper. Why don't you go and have a chat with him? So I did. And he said, well, you know, those are the results I got. And I said, well, is there any way I could look at some of your raw data and your experimental stuff? And he very kindly handed me his lab notebook, which I sat down with for a couple of hours. And I discovered that in doing his calculations, it was, you know, the molecular weight multiplied by a factor, multiplied by another length of wavelength and divided by it was quite complex so he had simplified all of the constants in that down to a number but what he had also added into that was a dilution factor which was one in ten and he just used thereafter this simple number when he got his result to multiply by but he was actually using undiluted samples, but multiplying by a factor of 10 where he shouldn't have been. So he was in fact getting exactly the same results I had, but one simple calculation error had put everything incorrectly. Yes. So my scientific career in terms of looking at papers had a very unusual education early on, if you like. Yes. So when it came then to talking to students about scientific papers, I said, you know, what we accept as scientific fact, we accept once there is a large body of knowledge pointing in the same direction. And we look at things that are theories We start maybe very often with a theory and we set out to examine it. And it's important that we set out to examine it and we're open to the fact that theories can be both proven and disproven. And I said one of the first things to look at, of course, is the scientific method. Because when we start examining that, not all scientific methods are created equal and not all scientists every science scientist is a human being and we're all prone to error and the person who is peer reviewing a paper doesn't know what's going on in the laboratory in detail they can't they're only looking at the results that are presented and they're using their knowledge and expertise to say well, this looks genuine, it is logical, it follows through, and maybe even, and this concurs with other papers that are similar to what I have read. So I suppose I taught my students in some ways to be a little bit sceptical when they read a paper, to have a look at the methodology and make sure that in their mind it's clear and it's logical and that the results when they look at them are again clear and logical and that when they then go to the conclusions 
just to be a little bit thoughtful about the conclusions that the writers of the paper have drawn because there have been occasions when I've looked at papers and looked at the conclusions and thought well actually that's one possible conclusion but here's another possible conclusion. So there are other explanations for other explanations that are possible and it's only when we have a body of knowledge several papers lots of experts in agreement that we begin to accept these things as facts rather than simply theories. So I think (laughs) it is important to approach any paper, any scientific document with a a small degree of scepticism, not not so much scepticism as awareness of the possibility that you know it is written by humans it is subject to human error yet these are people who are working hard are experts in their field and we are looking at it from the outside so yes it's sometimes look and see what else is out there that corroborates this information and don't take just one scientific paper or one statement by one scientist as being the absolute truth. Yeah, because there are there have been a number of papers that have been produced and you you encounter them first through the popular literature where someone will say, oh, there is a paper that that uh, somebody did that showing that uh, positive reinforcement uh, works so much better than than negative reinforcement. And of course, I I I love that paper because it agrees with me. Um, yes. Or or there'll be another paper that says, oh, positive reinforcement doesn't work. You know, the the uh, the horses didn't learn nearly as well as they did with negative reinforcement. And of course, I have to assume that that paper was faulty because it doesn't agree with me. Um, but. <laughs> So it's it's this. How do we read these? Uh, how do we how do we read these papers so that we can uh, fairly and without letting our biases get too much in the way um, evaluate the findings? And often, when I look at whether they're they're in agreement or not, when I look at some of the behavioral papers, the methodology is. Um, problematic. Yes, Yes. I I have to agree with that completely. And I think what very, very many people do when they read a scientific paper is they look at the heading and jump to the conclusions. That's right. And I do think that really the first place to start with is the methodology and, and have a really good look of that. I have gone to, I've been lucky enough to go to a couple of seminars where when the methodology was a little bit dubious, I had the opportunity to, you know, ask questions nicely of the the writers of the paper and say, well, did you consider that that might be influencing or this might be influencing your results? And very often they'll say, oh, no, well, that wasn't in our calculations and you know you just at that point say well thank you very much right. but clearly there has been a deficit in how they have 
gathered their information or what conclusions that they have drawn from the information that they have gathered. And that there are alternate explanations. That there are alternate explanations for the results they've obtained. Right. Yes. So it is very important to keep an open mind on that. And, And the starting point always has to be, I think, the methodology. And I know that uh, the, the study of one you've talked about on your podcast before, and it's right. something that I long struggled with because being a microbiologist where you're working with not just millions, but billions yes. of organisms in a few drops of liquid and you're doing everything in triplicate and all of this and multiple times, I always struggled with that concept but uh, I do think that there there has to be a certain level where we look at reproducibility in results and consistency over time one of the problems I see in behavioral science is that obviously if we if we're trying to compare two methods And with one animal, we can clearly see that one is causing anxiety or stress and the other isn't. Well, then we have to stop and ask ourselves, is it ethical to try and reproduce this exact experiment with another animal? Right. Where we suspect there may also be anxiety and stress. So all of these questions come in. We don't worry too much about stressing bacteria, I have to tell you, or viruses. (laughs) But when we're working with dogs or horses or whatever animal it is we're working with, then clearly we have to take different things into consideration. That's right. That's why the Poison Q uh, research was never uh, uh, replicated. Yes. Because nobody wanted to do that to their pet dog. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And we can monitor the effects of poison cues there are enough animals out there yes who already have well and truly poisoned cues by the, the way they've been trained or the circumstances right. they've been in for us to observe this without actually inflicting it deliberately on an animal creating yeah. it that's right and yeah. that was the direction that jesus went with the research is to say, well, you know, we don't have to go, we don't have to put another animal through this training procedure. Exactly. Yeah. We can just go out into the real world and observe uh, poison cues. We certainly can. Yeah. I think with every, with every workshop I do with every time I meet new clients and new horses, there's always, almost always, something in there that it presents as a poison cue yes yeah and to me the the importance of that research that jesus presented was exactly that is to just be able to recognize it when we see it right because it is it it has such a long lasting and impact on an animal's response and when you have a a horse or a dog or a child, a a colleague who's sort of buzzing along in a nice bend state and you're getting good results, getting good results, and then suddenly they're shutting down. It's like, what is this about? Yes. 
Yeah. And and it's about a poison cube. Right. Yeah. And to be able to recognize that is so important. Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah, and I think for, you know, before seeing this, a lot of people could have thought that reinforcing what you like and punishing what you don't like. Um, sounds like a good idea. Sounds like a very good plan. Yeah. And yet when you see this video, you realize that, I mean, it's you can get much, much better results without the punishment and concentrating on what you do want and reinforcing what you do want um, than, than this other route. Absolutely, yes. yes. Yeah, it makes a huge difference if we focus on what we want. Yeah. And, and with, with people new to clicker training, that can sometimes be a, a concept that they really struggle with, even in terms of the wording that they use you know, focus on what you do want, not what you don't want. Well, it's because very often people start searching help when they get unwanted behaviors. Absolutely, as I did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so what do you do? What do you want? You want to suppress right. the behavior. I want to stop yeah. this. You want to stop it. So your mindset is all about suppressing something. Right. And you don't, you haven't built made the repertoire to help you not get this behavior. So it's all about, I don't want the, I want the dog not to bark. I want the horse not to do this. Right, right. And, and sometimes when you ask people, well, what do you want your animal to do? They don't even know. Right. Well, I don't want him to bark. I don't want him to jump. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want my horse crowding into me. What do you want yeah, him to do? So what do you want? I don't know. I just don't want him to crowd me. I exactly. don't want him to crowd. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, how can you say that yes. in a positive way? Yeah. So so this brings me to sort of another sort of slight change in direction. Okay. Um, only my, changing changing the topic a little bit, but not dramatically so. So Ireland is a very uh, traditional yes. <laughs> uh, horse culture. It has a very deep uh, and I mean, Ireland and horses, they're almost synonymous. And absolutely. Uh, and absolutely. you have within your own family, uh, you had a, 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 Ruth was very, uh, was an event rider and um, very successful and so on. And, right. and not interested at all in clicker training. I remember that through that first visit uh, to your house and we were sitting in the kitchen and she's just come back from uh, hunting and she's telling all the, the tales, um, you know, right. and, and the, the, um, all the, the escapes from death, as it were. Uh, <laughs> and, and they're... they're well, Alex, you really got a baptism of fire into Irish... <laughs> horse culture i'm sitting there looking at you and thinking oh she'll never come back again but i did i did but it's, it's yes, interesting so because a lot of people live this deal with this of whether it's yes in the boarding barn or in their own family of these you know these sort of splits where uh you're wanting to explore clicker training and the rest of the horse community around you is totally not interested right so how do you manage that 
so that you keep peace in the family, as it were. <laughs> well, in my case, I think quite early on, because Ruth had had a very traditional training long before I started clicker training by one of by a person who would have been considered and still is one of the top trainers in the country for show horses and event horses. So as far as she was concerned, this this was the way it was done. Right. And when I started doing things very differently, she was very, very, very sceptical. And quite early on, we did agree to disagree on the way we handled horses. And I would respect her. She would respect me. However, I did have to work with her horses. Yes. Because they were living in our home. And so, and her, she tends to like really big horses so if you're looking I was at... going to say that that they're not teeny little ponies no, that she no, likes no yes a three quarter bread yeah. 17 hand and uh, an Irish sport horse who you know has a lot of draft in there yep. and very close to 17 hands and built quite like a tank so you know these are not small horses and you know I did have to say to her Absolutely, when you're working, and we have to add that to get them to turn out, that you're. It's not just well, let me walk a couple of feet, open no. a gate. That you have to walk. Um, we really, you really should describe uh, your your outdoor arena because it was one of the best groomed outdoor arenas I've ever <laughs> encountered. So I'm fortunate enough, fortunate enough to be living on Tralee Bay, and again. Kerry has some absolutely magnificent beaches. Right outside our garden, we had a shingle beach. And then when the tide went down, we had sand. Still have sand, obviously. Yes. And because it's a shingly beach and because all around there are beautiful sandy beaches, really, we've always had it to ourselves. And every day the tide goes in and out twice a day and grooms the arena for us. So we have this lovely flat sand area. Yes. Dries out. Magnificent, very big arena <laughs> that we can work on. But also the field where the horses had turned out was quite a distance down the beach, up a track and so on and up the road. So it's not just a matter, as you say, of opening a gate. So in handling these big boys, I wasn't prepared to use whips or throw ropes at them or smack them or hit them. I said, when I handle them, I'm going to use clicker training. And, you know, if that's not acceptable, then your horses can't live here. So <laughs> it was acceptable. And so very quickly they learned very basic behaviors and we got on really well and 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 it became really important at one stage we had five horses in the field and all of them needed feeding over the winter months so a very simple behavior to teach one horse is to target a tire which is what we used um, and then 
they stand there and wait while you bring the food to them. And you can teach that to a horse individually and then you get five of them in a field <laughs> and you have five horses when you bring food going and standing beautifully by their own tires and you can go and feed them in order. Well, I have no idea how you could do that without clicker training, but it was very, very effective and very simple to teach with clicker training. So a lot of these sort of fundamental handling basic manners that these horses needed for just moving from place to place, getting in, tying up, grooming, whatever. All of that was taught. Getting getting in and out of the gates Absolutely. and so on. And, and I saw that when they were uh, in the paddock at, at the house and you would go yeah. out at feeding time and each horse would go over to his spot at the along the fence and wait right, uh, right. while you yes. uh, went over and fed. And it's very impressive. And I think it's an important thing to, again, to highlight because it it shows just how much we can do with, with the clicker training. And I know people who have multiple horses, at times they feel that, that stress and struggle of how do I manage all of these horses? And they were your, they were roost horses, so these were not horses that I would call fully clicker trained. No, but you had taught them enough, right? So that they very quickly learned, and it was very quick. Yes, it was. Because I remember one of the visits. I don't know who was who it was, but they'd only been there for a couple of days, and they already knew the routine right. of <laughs> I go over to this box and wait yes, here. Yes, absolutely. They pick it up very quickly. The other really good behavior that I did teach them because in the winter months in Kerry, it rains so much, it can be horrendously wet and the ground gets so mucky and so heavy that, you know, you can't keep them out in the field. They're up to their oxters and muck before you know where you are. So they, we had uh, an area which was, had a run in shed and sand basically. And it's about, 35 meters by 15 so a reasonable sized area but when you put five good sized horses in there not a lot of space right and one of them one of roots had been with her for a number of years away and his party trick when you went in to muck out this area was to back up to the wheelbarrow and knock it over <laughs> Yeah, fun, if you're looking at it from yeah. the outside. Yeah. Not if you've just And they always up. wait until the wheelbarrow's full to do <laughs> yeah. that. So I thought, well, if they can all go and stand at their buckets for feed, they can all go and stand at a target along the fence while I muck out. So again, I taught each of them to stand at a target and I would, you know, back away, click and treat, back away further, click and treat. And this was not... I, I kept it as kind of a more general behavior. They did not have to keep their noses stuck on the target. It was, can you keep your nose oriented to the target and within about two or three feet of that target so that they were pretty stationary. And that allowed me then to go and get my wheelbarrow, go in, muck out. And, and we got to a point 
in time, not immediately, obviously, where I could go in, fill my wheelbarrow, maybe click and treat all five, go out, empty my wheelbarrow, come back in, fill it up again, click and treat all five, go out, empty my wheelbarrow, come wow. back in. And if I had finished at that stage, it was probably, you know, half an hour, 40 minutes. There's a lot of you know what with five horses. Yes, yes. And I, then rather than um, having mayhem, I would call each one individually to come and target my hand. And they got a fistful, which meant end of. And that was fine. And very, very quickly, they would get to the point where as, as soon as they heard the fork rattle in the wheelbarrow and the wheelbarrow approach, everybody was at their at their respective targets wow. and, and would stay there. It really was such a useful behavior to teach. I love things like that, because yeah. when you take something as ordinary as that and put a little bit of thought and training into it, it turns into something that is just extraordinary. Right. That's the what I always think of is turning these ordinary everyday activities into Grand Prix level behaviors. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Grand Prix level mucking out. And it does at the time at the start it does take time. Yep. Because you're, you know, going to your wheelbarrow, putting in one forkful, clicking and going around five horses <laughs> who are quite separate. Yes. And coming back again. And then another two forkfuls clicking. And so initially it does take a lot of time to do those few clean outs. But very quickly, the behavior grows as as we can with so many other behaviors. And this is a really good way. <laughs> and it's a great incentive to build duration. Yes, yes. For did you get any aggressive behaviors between horses and how did you uh, manage that? Not with that. In fact, um, two of Ruth's actually liked the, to go to the same target and I allowed them. But they chose that, that they would go together. So the two would stand together. Um, there was the one who was always more the boss. Initially, I would sort of walk between them and feed them both simultaneously. And I did try and do that most of the time. And and the other thing that they learned very quickly was even though I was clicking inside the shed and it would take me time to walk to each of them, they were quite happy to wait for their treat. You know, it wasn't happening very rapidly after the click. One of the things I do like about clicker training and one of the things I say to my students is the click buys you time. And that was a really great example of how the click bought you time. So for those two, very often I fed them simultaneously or, you know, if one was closer than the other, I would feed one and then the other. And they just learned very quickly to wait. But everybody got their their treat and were prepared to wait for it. Well, I, I saw the result of that and it was impressive. I, I just want though to, to warn people if they are going to work with multiple animals um, because, and, and obviously when you are working with multiple animals, 
um, and you're reinforcing one animal, you should be feeding the other animals Absolutely. who are standing in place because that's a behavior on its own. Absolutely. But I think it's important for the handler not to put themselves in at risk because I have seen skilled, experienced rider being thrown on the ground while they were feeding two horses simultaneously. And these horses were horses that were together in their paddock. Right. But, you know, there was some resource guarding there and it it was an accident, but it happened twice. And so I think we always have to, Alex always says, safety comes safety, first. Safety, 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 yeah. yes. And when you're working right. in the middle of a herd with food, you have to make sure that, you know, you're very aware of the dynamic between Absolutely. the animals and that you're not putting yourself or some of the horses at risk. Um, because for the animal, the social interaction is also something that they are aware of. And even if you're trying to click a horse, if he thinks he should not walk in front of the mare or the, the alpha horse, they, you know, it, it makes the training more complicated when you're working yes, it with does. multiple. So right. it's a, you know, when it's, it's, I agree with, uh, with Alex, it's very impressive when, you know, you've seen someone who has achieved it, but just to make sure that people don't try it uh, and put themselves at risk without being very aware that they're. Absolutely. Be- I'm glad you've brought that point up because when I was doing the feeding in the field, with five different horses or the feeding in the arena with five different horses. I always organized it so that I would go to the most alpha mm-hmm. dominant at the time one first. And as we all know, that can vary mm-hmm. <laughs> within a herd. Um, but I would always feed them in order, if you like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Quite deliberately so that the one who felt they were the kingpin yeah right got fed first and then the others would wait more patiently for their turns without a doubt that's important yeah and you taught the behavior individually first absolutely yes they all learn the behavior individually before i put them together right and and when i was even you know i taught each one individually then i worked with a pair then i worked with three yep and so on and and built it up you can't just go out with five horses and put down five no no and even when you work in pair and then the threesome you can use protective contact throughout the process absolutely Yeah. yeah and when you know you can take the protective contact away because you've done enough exercises with the protective contact i think that's a safe way to do things yes and then One of the things that actually helps with the safety is you are, because they are going to a station along the fence, you're separating them. Yeah. So they really have a chance to relax and feel safer because they are spread out. They were quite Mm -hmm. spread out. They were absolutely quite spread out so that they each had their own space, except at one stage, as I say, I had these two of roots that preferred to be together. Um, but it's hard when you're alone. It's easy when you have many trainers working with multiple yeah. animals. Yes, But when you're alone and they're all <laughs> spread out, it's not that easy. You get very fit, don't you? Makes because you 
Very yes. fit. Thank you, Alex. You took the words yeah. out of my mouth. You get very fit very quickly, <laughs> getting from one to the other. And, you know, you, 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 it's important that you do do something like that quite smartly so that they know you are yeah. coming. And occasionally. It's not something you improvise. No. Oh, I'm just going to go in the herd today and start doing targeting so that they each know where their no. station is. Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. No, it's something you teach individually first, build duration first, and then start right. to bring them together. And, you know, even with that, what would happen sometimes is that I would have clicked and and one of them might decide, well, if I get to Mary before she gets to me, I'll get my treat mm. sooner. And in that case, what I would do was ignore them, walk to the target and present mm. their food there. So even if they had moved off a couple of meters or a couple of yards, their food was back mm, at the target. So they very quickly learned that actually they weren't going to get anything any sooner by approaching me. They had to wait for me to mm -hmm. come to them. And that's an important thing too, I think, that you know, you're quite careful about your own procedure in terms of where you feed and how yep. you feed and consistently. And, and, and that, Dominique, you're absolutely right that everybody gets reinforced. So yes. it's that when you've got, uh, and the, the way that this is always described that makes the most sense is if you have three Labrador retrievers on a station and you throw a tennis ball for one of them, which are the dogs that are doing the hardest job? Well, not the dog that gets to chase after the tennis ball. It's the two that stayed sitting on this at the station. Yeah. So they get reinforced as well as the dog that brings the tennis ball back to you. So the when you're working with the multiple animals, it's not the one that you're focused on who gets clicked and reinforced. It's everybody gets clicked and reinforced Absolutely. for staying yeah. at their station. And I find yeah. that because I work with multiple dogs in my household, but I find that the hierarchy is a, it seems to, it's been my experience that it's a bigger thing with the horses than with the dogs. Or I don't know, maybe it's because my dogs, you know, ever since day one, when I treat one, the other one is always receiving also a treat. So right. it's, always been good news for a dog to hear the other dog being clicked i don't know if it's because the horses they get fed you know in turns and have i i i always feel more aware of a hierarchy with the horses than with the dogs i i don't know how to explain it no you're absolutely right but i do think there's another factor there too dominique if you think about the hours that you spend in your home mm. with the dogs yep. compared to the time spent with horses i mean for most people they would think themselves very lucky if they get to spend an hour a day yeah with their horse yeah whereas if you've got a dog in the house usually from the moment you're up in the morning to the time you go to bed at night you're with the dog for a lot of that time yeah so undoubtedly they are going to be closer to you react differently to you have a better understanding of how you act 
than the horse that sees you for one hour a day? I certainly think when I go to the barn, I feel that any, for Woody, who's been the one I've had for the longest time, he would want me to spend all my time yes. with him. And I, I do feel that when I go play with the others, for him, it's, I, it seems to be hard. You know, he wants yeah. me, he, ex, he, he finds ways of, you know, trying to engage with me. Right. Yeah, so so maybe they they are more deprived of time with us than the dogs would be. I don't know. I think that's inevitable. You know, yes, we may only spend a certain amount of training time with dogs, but but people generally, you know, if you think of a waking day, if you're up for 16 hours a day, even if you're out at work for eight of those hours, you're still probably spending six or seven hours a day with your dog compared to, as I say, for most people, if they get an hour a day with their horse, they're doing well. So that's a huge time difference. And I think the dogs recognize the human pattern even better, more quickly. But you're absolutely right, recognizing the hierarchy within the horse herd and acknowledging it and working with it rather than trying to fight it is very, very important. And I was always oh, yeah. conscious of it uh, in feeding groups of horses, always. It's, it's a topic, you know, Ken Ramirez has a whole course on this, working with multiple animals. Yeah. So it's a complex, uh, it's, it's a complex training situation. Yes, it is. So, but it's, I mean, certainly when you, you know, even if you want to go get one horse because you want to work with that horse and leave the other two in the paddocks and then come back in. And I mean, it certainly helps to have the, the horse's station while you're in and out and uh, tending to one and not having the others, you know, trying to uh, push you in your back, etc. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's, it's, it's something that people do tend to ignore mm -hmm. because it's not anything that within the traditional horse world people bother with. They just flick ropes or whips at the animals yeah, they'll and just chase, chase them the away, others away and that's it. Yeah. yeah, and the horses don't want to, to hang out as much. I mean, our no, horses, they don't. I know my horse, when they see me, they run to the door. They want to Absolutely. be with me. Yes. But that can be a problem. Yes, it can be a problem. And it can be a problem when you finish up too. And again, with newbie, in the early days of clicker training, it was a huge problem. He would cut me off at the pass, as they say. I would be trying to get to the gate to get out. I know exactly and he's what you mean. circling in front of me and saying more, 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 more. And, you know, it, it took me time to come up with effective routines again, because I was, so, as many people often are at the start, very isolated in my, my learning and teaching of clicker training. And it takes time to come up with these routines. Nowadays, I have people when they are finishing and trying to get out of a pen or a stable or whatever to actually just give the horse a final task, whether it's touch a target or whatever, 
give them a single treat, give them a rub, tell them they're the best horse in the world and put maybe a fistful of treats on the ground so that they have that distraction while you leave. Well, we we call it the exit strategy. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a very clear signal. And they recognize, yeah, they recognize that. Yeah. Uh Oh, okay. The handful of treats means, and you can, you can have um, a kind of a, you know, a a word for it. For me, when I'm done with my horses, I will always say, Sifini. Right. And I give them a handful of treats and they know it's over. Absolutely. Yep. All done. Yeah, all done. All done. Good, uh, you've been great, and that's right. Yeah, so they recognize that. That's it. Now for the if when I that's easy when you're in the box. But I had a horse once who was like that. He didn't want the um, when we were in the arena. He didn't want the game to stop. So he would he would do everything he could so we couldn't get out. You know, he would right. circle in front of me. So what I did is I continued the game all the way to his box and then a few minutes in his box. Right. Absolutely. So leaving the arena was not the end of the session anymore. Yes. Um, it continues. And I think that's very important too. It's really important that they recognize this isn't the end. It isn't all over. Well, he was the only one who, who was a problem. The others, I can feel that, you know, they would have liked to stay longer, but they don't, they haven't developed that, you know, those behaviors right. that, that become kind of, hmm, not sure I'm liking this too much. But, you know, it's coming from a place that I love, the fact that the animal is liking the session. Yes. But there's a point where you do have to go make supper. Absolutely. And so you, you have to find a way to do it. Um, where And it worked really well yeah. with this horse. I mean, yeah. we just targeted our way back to his box and then played in the box. And that was it. It, uh, it wasn't a problem anymore. Right. I often think they're possibly even cleverer than the other ones because they have worked that out for themselves, how to stop the human escaping (laughs) so that they have to do more until they get into their their own place. Yeah, absolutely. So to change the subject yet again. Alex, just before we jump into something else, my car is in the garage. And I'm going to have to go pick it up before five o'clock. And it's half an hour from here. Okay. Well, it's, it's, it's almost, it's quarter to four now. Right. So we should be fine. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, so we'll fit, we'll, we'll go a few more okay. minutes. Okay. And, and then Sorry if we. Sorry ha- that I'm giving you more editing to do. Now. Right. So if we, if we have to Cause stop. Because I we- feel we could go on for easily another hour and a half. I, I, I think that's probably true. So we either, we, we should either stop now and then say to Mary, you have to come back because right. where I wanted, maybe we'll yeah. do that because where I wanted to head. We haven't even done rope handling yet. Well, that's I the know. thing. Where I wanted to head was to the minuet hand. And it's too important to just... Um, right. So you know what? I think maybe we'll take this as our cue. Yeah. And so, Mary, you have to come back. Okay. Because we have to talk about the minuet yeah. hand. Right. Definitely. Definitely. So we yeah. will arrange another time fairly soon. Okay. And I'll just say before we stop for the day that you, you've been doing a tremendous amount of teaching. You teach in, in the UK. You teach in France and in Germany. And you have a website. What is your website these days? Well, it's evolving f- into clickthathorse.com. It used to be Irish Clicker Center, but as I 
do virtually nothing in Ireland and didn't. Um, but as we, uh, you know, as it becomes more European and even worldwide, clickthathorse.com seems to be a better name. So yeah. that's what it is now. Right. And you're, you're based now, now that you're retired, you're based in England. So it's very easy for people in the UK Absolutely. to get in contact with yeah. you. And this coming June, uh, we're going to be together for a couple of clinics. Right. We'll be at uh, Becky Chapman's Ashen Equestrian Centre in June, and then we'll be going together up to Scotland, to Aberdeen again. Nice. So, and I always look forward to uh, to the UK visits and, and uh, having you as a traveling companion through the courses and, and co-teacher. So uh, I will very soon have the 2019 course schedule up on my website, right. theclickercenter.com. Right. So we'll just mention that in passing. Excellent. So if people are interested in workshops, they are there. You have uh, many opportunities in in Europe and to go to your website. And if you're right. interested in the UK workshops that we're doing together, which would be great fun. Uh, those dates will be up both on your website and on mine. Yes. And on that note, we'll probably should say goodbye and let uh, Dominique go get her car. Okay, sounds good. And we will, we will, we will very soon. We will schedule another one of these visits, Excellent. and we'll talk about rope handling and the menu at hand because we've just scratched the surface. Right. <laughs> right. Absolutely, right. it's a date. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Very good. Looking forward to it. All right. So we'll say we'll we'll say goodbye for now. Okay. And bye. bye. Dominique and I want to wish you all a very happy new year. We have a lot of fun projects in the works for 2019. They're still in the development stage, so we'll leave it at that as a teaser. I'll just say for now, we're looking forward to a year of extraordinary learning experiences. As we just mentioned in the podcast, I'm going to be doing my usual traveling in 2019. I say my usual traveling, meaning that I'm going to be doing the winter conferences, the Clicker Expo and the Art and Science of Animal Training Conference. And I'll be doing the Clicker Training Clinics in the spring and the fall. Most of, most of them are going to be at locations that I've been visiting for a number of years now. And we have a wonderful core group of clicker trainers who attend each of these clinics. But I've got new clinic locations as well. And then I have two really fun special events that I'm just so excited about. The first one, well, actually, it's the second one. It's the first one that I put up on the schedule, but it's the second one is in July. It's just going to be a super exciting event. I'm teaming up with Dr. Jesus Rosales Ruiz and Mary Hunter. Mary, you'll be meeting later uh, in the podcast. And also we're going to be doing a project with her around the teaching of behavioral analysis. Super excited about that. But in any event, we're, we're, the three of us are teaming up and the event is being organized by Michaela Hempen, who you met in one of the earlier podcasts over the summer. And we are putting on a clicker training and science summer camp. And it's going to be just outside of Parma, Italy. We are going to have 
the most amazing time. We have a Feldenkrais practitioner who is going to be giving us daily sessions. So I met last year. She's just extraordinary. And we're going to have uh, sessions where we get to discuss all the real in-depth details of behavioral analysis. And then we have Michaela's horses right there and the other resident horses. So we can go ask them questions. So it's the classic, go to people for opinions and horses for answers. So we get to, to really explore in detail, not just the theoretical aspect of behavioral analysis, but also the very practical. And we'll be playing Portal. Uh, it's just going to be an amazing, amazing time. I'm especially looking forward to the campfires late at night as the discussions just roll on from the day because it's a very beautiful and remote location. And if we're very lucky, we'll hear the wolves howling. Very neat. So it's a very small group. Space is very limited. And we only have a couple slots left. So if you've been tempted, if you've heard about this and you've been tempted, I would really recommend that you sign up uh, now and not wait and think, oh, I'll just sign up later because uh, we really do have just a couple spots left. The other new event, which I'm just really, really tickled by, is one I'm going to be doing with Manda Scott. And Manda is an, well, Manda used to be a vet. She started out as a vet. And then she quit her day job, as it were, to become a full-time author. She writes historical novels. Uh, she's written several series that were set around the time of the Roman invasion of Britain. And as part of those novels, she has explored the shamanic dreaming. And she teaches dreaming, dreaming workshops, the, the exploration of energy. And I've known Manda for her years now. She's just a super neat person and I'm really excited that we found a way to connect our two two repertoires as it were. Ms. Manda also has horses and she is passionately interested in the clicker training. So we're going to put together a workshop that includes this exploration of the dreaming that is Manda's part of the equation and then we're also going to be looking at the micro writing process, which is something that I developed as part of clicker training to help people develop greater kinesthetic observational skills. So the two I think are going to go together really, really well. And who knows what's going to emerge out of the combination of those two repertoires. So we're going to be combining the ancient art, the ancient magic of horses, the great wisdom of horses, with the modern science of clicker training. Just gives me chills. And so that's going to be in June in Shropshire. And again, space is very limited on this course. So if that sounds tempting, that sounds like something that you'd like to explore, you should definitely contact uh, Manda and sign up sooner rather than later. The details for all of those events are on my website, theclickercenter.com. I always look forward to the clinics, the conferences. I tell people this is how I take my holidays. And I hope that you join me at one of these events to take your holiday as well. 
and we can explore these ideas in even greater detail. So, Happy New Year, Happy New Year, and have fun with clicker training. <laughs>